Well, Happy New Year. Uh, hope your resolutions are, are going well. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Connor Woods. I am our students and media associate here at Gospel Collective Church. So I oversee our student ministry and I also oversee um, things like our live stream and what you see on screen. Uh, but I don't do audio, so that is not me. I'm just kidding. So, uh, welcome. Uh, if you're new, I uh, want to point you to the welcome card. You might have one in the pew in front of you. There's also a QR code on the screen. We would love uh, just to get some really basic information to get to know you. Uh, maybe set up a coffee, visit with you, um, tell you more about our church, things like that. So I uh, would love to uh, pray for you as well. We also pray over all the prayer requests put on those in our staff meetings on Monday mornings. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and flip to Leviticus chapter 19. Um, we're going to camp out there for a good portion um, this morning. Uh, speaking of New Year's resolutions, maybe one of yours um, is to read through the entire Bible uh, in a year. Uh, maybe that's been your New Year's resolution for you know, the past several years uh, and you haven't gotten to it yet. No judgment. No judgment. You get to Genesis and you're like, okay, I got it. Like creation full. Uh, Abraham, all of that. And you get to Exodus, you're like, all right, there's some um, real life stuff going on here, right? Some pretty crazy um, things. This Bible is kind of this unfolding drama uh, of mankind's sin and, and God's faithfulness. You're like, okay, I got it. I mean, the Israelites are really messing this up, but I, I get the gist of it. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's law after law after law after law. And you're like, all right, I don't think I'm going to be boiling a goat in its mother's milk, check. And so maybe you, you kind of punt on Leviticus and you go to Deuteronomy. And I say, oh, I'll come back to Leviticus. But then Deuteronomy is law after law after law. And so uh, maybe you just put the Old Testament on pause and you go read Matthew for the 10th time. So no judgment. Uh, if anyone tells you that the Old Testament is really easy to read, uh, they're lying to you. Um, so what I want us to see this morning is that there are some really rich and deep theological and moral truths and realities for us today. Again, beneath all the culturally bound laws, there's some really rich truths for us today. We're starting a new series called Hospitality, Welcoming with the Gospel. And so today we're going to be beginning by looking at what is hospitality. What does the Bible say about it? You know, hospitality, uh, I think, I think it's, that, that word has um, kind of been co-opted with entertaining, right? Like that our idea of hospitality is, is more related to entertaining than it is uh, to what the Bible says about it. You know, we just got done with Thanksgiving uh, and with Christmas. And so maybe hospitality was on your mind, you know, getting all the right food, having things for your guests to do at your house, or maybe uh, you went to someone's house and, and uh, a relative or a friend and uh, you were kind of expecting to receive hospitality. Um, and, you know, we want to have a, an Instagram-worthy house. That's the most common understanding of hospitality. You know, there's some people that seem gifted, really gifted in this area. Uh, I would not count myself as one of those people that um, could just entertain uh, and really put on um, for um, guests. It's almost everybody you see on shows like HGTV. Uh, everyone who's looking for a house is, you know, I want a space so I can entertain. Uh, I've yet to see one 
uh, or to see somebody who says, I just kind of want a place to myself. And I haven't seen that yet. But there's this existential pressure to have the best looking house, the best tasting food, the best forms of entertainment, and yet that's not biblical hospitality at all. The type of hospitality that focuses on entertaining and pleasing others is so incredibly thin. It's the kind of hospitality that leaves us exhausted with a lot of dishes to clean. And so uh, today, this morning, I want to look at um, what the Bible has to say about hospitality. So just a baseline definition. So biblical hospitality is loving and welcoming the stranger. It's loving and welcoming strangers. Um, strangers are those who are unlike us politically. They're unlike us religiously. Those are kind of the two um, you know, very broad generalizations. They're unlike us religiously. They're unlike us politically or morally. And so um, what we have to understand is there's this uh, relationship between loving and welcoming. We can't have, there is no biblical hospitality that is loving divorced from welcoming or welcoming divorced from loving. Just as James chapter 2, verse 17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James isn't saying these things are impossible to do separately. He's just saying it's pointless to do so, right? There's no real point. We see examples of this all the time. We have what's called the hospitality industry. Hotels, restaurants, cruises, you know, they put, they might make the, the, the towels and put them in like a little swan or put chocolates on your pillow. That's like, those are, that's showing hospitality. But do they love and welcome? No, they don't love you. So it's possible for us to extend hospitality and at the same time not be hospitable people. We can extend hospitality and also withhold love. And so we have to realize that it's, it's pointless to do so. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to who? Strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't know all of what that means, uh, but it sounds really cool. Uh, nevertheless, there is this connection between hospitality and love, between love and welcoming. It is loving and welcoming the stranger. So two aspects of hospitality I want to focus on this morning, and we're just going to get, I'm just going to give them to you up front, is that hospitality is a quality and a command of God. Hospitality is a quality and a command of God. And so we're going to begin with the command, and we're going to see this relationship between the quality and the command and how they kind of um, fuel one another. And so in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love and be hospitable to our own family, uh, to our own, our own family, our own uh, you know, religious circles, our friends, our coworkers, right? people that we interact with on a daily basis, that we line up with. And on the surface, it seems really reasonable, right? Like, oh, you're telling me I have to love my family. 
I don't know what your family background is, but if we took a quick survey, uh, I'd say probably no one in the room had a Thanksgiving or a Christmas that just went perfectly smooth, no disagreements, right? no family quarrels. Uh, this is a lot harder sometimes than we think, and oftentimes it's harder than what we see in verse 34. Leviticus 19.34, it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what we see here is verse 34 is um, expanding. It broadens the scope of verse 18. It goes from um, not only do we have to love and uh, be hospitable to those within our camp, right, those within our circle, but it's now everyone, right? It's the stranger. It's those unlike us. So we are to love and be hospitable to strangers at all times. And this is a really high bar, right? We can see this and see it's a high bar, but consider the context in which God is communicating this and how absurd it would sound for God to his people at this point in time to tell them that you have to be hospitable. You have to love those unlike you. On the one hand, there, there was no culture in the world that valued and practiced hospitality. Like, you think ancient Egypt is practicing hospitality by captivating and you know, enslaving and pillaging? all the nations around them. Like, like the idea for, for God to call His people to treat others with, with love and compassion and be hospitable would have sounded absolutely absurd. So not only is it radically different than all of the cultural ideology surrounding God's people, but do you really think that after being enslaved for 430 years, the Israelites are just prone to be hospitable? especially those that are unlike them or even their captors. Anyone's natural instinct, and we can assume that instinct of the Israelites, would to take revenge. It's just really fascinating at this point in history, in this cultural situation, God calls His people to be hospitable, to show love and to show favor to the foreigner. And that's why these texts... Uh, if you were to read um, all of Leviticus 19, it's surrounded by God's call for His people to be holy, to be set apart, to be different than the nations. And the same call applies to us today. It, it's just it's almost mind-boggling um, to me to see that the line that we draw in the sand to love others and to show hospitality are things like political ideologies, or things like vaccines and mask mandates. Like, seriously? Like, you can't, no, you, you choose. We choose not to love strangers, not to show hospitality because we disagree on wearing or not wearing a piece of cloth in front of our faces. It's absolute nonsense. We've lost our minds. And it's not just between strangers, man. It's in our own camp. The absolute carnage I see on Twitter and other social media between uh, professing Christians 
is appalling. I can't tell who's who. We live in a culture of outrage, and yet we are called to love and to be hospitable people. And I I firmly believe that the greatest, one of the greatest apologetics of our day is to be hospitable people. Showing hospitality is so polar opposite of the outrage machine that we actually feed when, with every tweet, with every snarky comment. We must show hospitality. And although it will require a lot of work, right, like the absolute um, demolishing of our pride, it's not one that's unattainable. And so for all, for all the, the introverts in the room, we said well, we're going to be talking about hospitality and the idea of like welcoming and, and like loving strangers just like makes you sweat. Um, know that I'm with you. Uh, I am one of those introverts. And so we'll talk later about how uh, what fuels our hospitality. Um, and uh, it's not, you know, a character trait. It's not an Enneagram number. Um, it's actually something greater and more powerful that's out, outside of ourselves um, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, this is a high bar. Right? Loving and being hospitable is a difficult thing to do. And so it's no surprise that it's also a qualification for someone to be an elder. First Timothy 3, 2-3 through 3 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Now that word overseer, uh, overseer, elder, um, they're interchangeable. So um, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, a lot of these make sense, right? Self-control. Okay, we we don't want someone who just flies off the rails to be leading our people. Uh, Someone who's respectable. We want someone who has a good reputation as someone who's worth following. Able to teach. We want someone who can read God's Word, understand it, and teach it. Um, not a drunkard. That would make communion really awkward. Um, and for anyone who's confused, we have grape juice here. Um, don't worry. Uh, and now, someone who is hospitable. An elder must love and welcome the stranger, both as a part of their own lifestyle, but also a part as a member, of a, as an elder of a church. Um, on the service, any, anyone who struggles or refuses to show hospitality is really going to have a hard time sharing the gospel. Because hospitality is loving and welcoming, it'd be really difficult to, to share the gospel with someone if you don't give a rip about them, right? If you don't love them. I mean, what, what motivation even is there to share the gospel if you don't love them? And then at the end of the day, what, what is, you know, extending um, you know, just showing hospitality, like, like being a nice person. Like, what, is, what does that do devoid of love? You know, at, at the best, that person, they don't have a relationship with Jesus, dies and goes to hell thinking you're a really nice person. So an elder must be hospitable. All of God's people must be hospitable. So this is a command of God, right? It's very clear it's a command of God, but it's also a quality of God. Hospitality is a quality of God. Right? It's part of His nature. 
And so here, here's the, the dynamic, the relationship between this command and quality. It's similar to holiness in that God commands His people to be hospitable because He is hospitable. See, God is the perfect embodiment of hospitality. And in the same vein as that, God calls us to be holy, to be set apart because He is set apart. We are called to be hospitable because He is hospitable. And so we see this displayed in the Old Testament, but kind of more on on the ground level in the life of Christ. And so we're going to go through three examples. We're going to look at how Christ displays hospitality. So first in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, Jesus is not trying to out Martha Stewart anyone here at this wedding, right? He's not trying to out anyone. His primary motivation isn't even to like flex on anybody. He doesn't even bring it up. He's not right. Yeah, I did that. Right? I brought. I brought all this. Jesus' primary motivation is to glorify himself, but not in a, in a showboaty type of way. And it says in verse eleven that he manifested his glory, meaning that his ultimate purpose was to bring an awareness to his divinity. And so the byproduct of that is what? A great act of hospitality. It's like Jesus can't not show hospitality as like an overflow of his nature. I mean, he didn't hold back. That's 120 gallons of wine. Talk about a good wedding gift. right? If I, if I wasn't Baptist, I'd be throwing in an amen there. Like that, That's incredible. It's out of the overflow of his nature that he can't help but be hospitable. The second example we see in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who was, but on the account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran out on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay with you today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he 
also is the son of Abraham. For the son, son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, now this text is not saying that you should just invite yourself into people's homes, right? Don't do that. In our culture today, that'd be kind of rude. But in this culture, it's actually a very high honor for a rabbi to want to eat a meal with you, much less want to just go into your house. And so um, think about if, well, no analogy is perfect, so I don't know how this is going to land, but think about um, if, like, the president wanted, you know, he, he came to your house, he showed up to your house, and he said, hey, I've heard a lot about you. I want to have a meal with you, and I want to get to know your family. I just want to have a conversation. Like, that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, you might be standing there like, oh, no, I've said some really terrible things about you on Twitter. I posted some really terrible stuff on Facebook. I disagree with a lot of what you stand for. But like, nevertheless, that is a huge honor. And so in the same way, this is what Jesus is doing. He is saying, hey, I want to get a meal with you. I want to get to know you. I value you. I'm welcoming you by welcoming myself into your home. And so what he's doing is he's showing that his hospitality goes past anything that would you know, bring dishonor or, or bring kind of shame to, to who he is. Jesus doesn't care. Right? Jesus doesn't care about his own pride that he might accumulate by associating himself with a tax collector. I mean, look at the context. There's an audible groan by the crowd. He's like, oh my gosh. Do you believe Jesus is going to be with a tax collector? And again, Jesus' primary goal is not that he might look morally superior. Actually, what he's doing would make him look morally inferior. His goal is that salvation would come to the house of Zacchaeus. Uh, and some scholars believe that um, the, the receiving, or Zacchaeus like receiving Christ is, is evident that he received him as Lord. I mean, he calls him Lord in the passage. And again, this hospitable nature, Jesus going out of his way, to break bread with Zacchaeus is just an overflow of who he is. There's a desire to know Zacchaeus, to welcome him, to love him. And so finally, we see um, another example in John chapter 4. It's a beautiful exchange. You might be familiar with it. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired, for, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. The man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe in me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Sumerians worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, and I am He. There is not a more polarizing figure Jesus could have picked to be hospitable towards. Yes, Zacchaeus, but this is a Sumerian woman. And yet the undertones of this passage are that of love and a sense of welcoming and embracing someone who is different in so many ways. And notice that Jesus is also confronting some difficult realities, like the, multiple, like the multitude of husbands she's had. Right? He doesn't shy away from difficult conversation. But the principle remains that Christ loved and welcomed her, and this overflow of his nature, this, this hospitality, it softened her heart and actually, if we were to keep on reading, led to her salvation. And so, maybe you know, this morning, we, we, there's a lot, we've been talking a lot about hospitality. Um, you might be familiar with it. You might even be aware of the biblical call to hospitality. And the reality is a lot of us have been hurt by those who have refused hospitality or, or just maybe you've experienced it only in this relationally thin entertainment type of hospitality. And maybe, maybe you're searching for something richer, right? Something more authentic. And this morning, I just want to say, look, look to Christ. Look to Christ. That Christ Himself extended the ultimate expression of hospitality by loving and welcoming us through His death and His resurrection. And so maybe today you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Can I just remind you that He is worth so much, right? The examples that we've seen this morning pale in comparison to Jesus' death on the cross. And there is the horrifying reality if you are not in Christ that you are in sin. That you are dead in your sin without any power, without any hope to redeem yourself. There's nothing that you can do with your church attendance um, or enough you know, good, hospitable acts. There's absolutely nothing you can do to redeem yourself and your sin because you stand at odds with a perfect and holy God who will accept nothing less than perfect justification for all sin. That you're, you're, not, you're not His child, right? You're made in His image, but you're not His child. You're a child of His wrath. But there is Jesus. And Romans 5.8 says that, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to pay 
the debt of sin that you acquired. The sin that you were born with and the sin that you choose to do. Christ absorbed God's wrath on the cross for those that would put his faith in him. And Jesus says in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So not only does Jesus extend hospitality on the cross, but when you place your faith in Him, when you surrender to Jesus, He goes and prepares a place for you in heaven. So what does that mean? Galatians 4 says, starting verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time have come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. So that in Jesus, setting a place for you in heaven, what He's doing is He is adopting you into God's family. You become God's child. And this is great news. This is what we just celebrated at Christmas. This is why the birth of Christ is so significant, not just as a historical figure, but as the Messiah, as the Savior, the light of the world. That we no longer have to stay as orphans, separated in relationship from a heavenly Father who loves us, but Christ, coming into the world, has led us to the Father. And then beyond that, He's gone and prepared a place for those who have put our trust in Him. And this morning, you can also place your faith, you can also surrender to Christ. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the ultimate expression of hospitality. That God would welcome us, the stranger. That God would love us, the sinner. What a beautiful reality for us, for us who are in Christ. And this morning, you can be in Christ. You can be adopted into God's family. We just read it, Romans 10, 9. And it's not your words that, that save you, right? There's no magic prayer. It's the power of the Holy Spirit drawing you to God, molding your affections to Christ, where your surrender is not one out of obligation, it's not one out of fear, but it's one out of love and a reverence for who Jesus is. And so if you are looking for a God that loves and welcomes the stranger, you need only to look to the cross of Christ where Jesus died in the empty tomb where he arose and secured our salvation. Power over death power over sin, and safe evermore. So how do we live hospitable lives for those of us who are in Christ? Right? We, we know what hospitality is. We know that God's commanded it of us. We know it's part of His nature. So are we, are we just trying to throw like the best parties? Are we trying to be you know, the Joanna Gaines of, of our day? No. And to be honest, you can't compete with JoJo anyways. Not a chance. So first... We have to recognize that we can only extend hospitality to the degree that we understand the hospitality shown to us. 
Meaning that, that I can't be, you can't be hospitable past the point by which you understand the hospitality Christ showed you on the cross, the, the ransoming and adopting act of God. So that the more that you understand that hospitality, then the more and more hospitable you can be toward others. So how do we do that? Um, a, a practice I would just highly encourage um, and, and I, I kind of ad- adopted this from just reading through the Psalms. I, I recognize there was this, this pattern of, uh, of remembrance, right? That the psalmist remembers who God is, right? He might state his case, right? That he's in despair, and then he, he calls upon uh, what, the, what God has done in the past. And then that, that fuels him. Uh, it's just this, this theme throughout the Psalms that it fuels him to have confidence and hope for the future. And so uh, just a practice I would just commend to you is keep a, just a regular prayer and praises journal. Right? Nothing fancy. I'm not saying you have to, to you know, adopt another uh, New Year's resolution. Uh, you don't have to get up at like 6 a.m. and like be really diligent, but just regularly kind of just jot down what, is, what does God bless you with, right? How has God answered prayers? And what are you praying for? And so over time you can track and see what the Lord has done. And so for all you introverts out there, that's where you begin, right? I'm not saying you have to go out and just be the, the most extroverted person. Um, that's going to take time. Um, but that's where you might begin. So three really practical ways, three like on the ground ways that we can extend hospitality, be hospitable people. One, don't withhold your best from the stranger don't withhold your best from the stranger, right? Jesus, although he was invited to the wedding, uh, the context doesn't show that he had a very close relationship to the bride and groom. Um, and nevertheless, he extended a very great act of hospitality. Um, and so just kind of modeling after that, like we want to show our best um, for the stranger. Again, not in a way that puffs up our pride, uh, but in a way that reflects the lavish hospitality that God showed us. So don't withhold your best. Two, break bread together. There's a very common pattern, and the Bible places a very heavy significance on eating meals together. And that might seem too simple, um, but one thing that um, me and my wife had just realized as we meet with people, uh, we meet with our neighbors, um, is that breaking bread just opens the door for a lot of really interesting conversations. And it doesn't take but a few um, you know, deeper level questions other than like, hey, did you see the citrus bowl yesterday? To really get at some heart level issues. Uh, and so break bread together. And that kind of flows into number three, which is engage in meaningful conversations. Engage in meaningful conversations, not just surface level, but really thorough heart level things. So I'm going to close with this John Piper quote about hospitality. It says, therefore, when we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We, experiencing, we experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospita- hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Or here's another way to put it. When we practice hospitality, we experience the thrill of feeling God's power, conquer our fears and our stinginess, and all the psychological gravity of our self-centeredness. 
There are few joys, if any, greater than the joy of experiencing the liberating power of God's hospitality, making us a new and radically different kind of people who love to reflect the glory of His grace as we extend it to others in all kinds of hospitality. So we are motivated and fueled to show hospitality because of the love and the welcoming that God displayed in adopting us into His family, making us sons and daughters of the King, and then turning us loose into the world to proclaim this good news and extend hospitality to others, being reminded of the hospitality that we were shown in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for extending hospitality through your Son, Jesus. God, we recognize that um, there's no way we could even match that. And so this morning, would you just bring an awareness of how great you are, of how loving and welcoming you are, that you would love and welcome us sinners, that you would adopt us into your family. And then, Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would motivate us and send us out to love and be hospitable to those around us. We love you and pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.